Hi humans, I'm Josh Schlossberg, and for this episode of the Green Root Podcast, we're welcoming Gary Walkner. Gary is one of the world's experts on the negative impacts of so-called clean energy hydropower. He directs Save the Colorado, which fights dams in the Colorado River Basin, decimated by hydropower. He founded the Free Flowing Rivers Initiative in the Global Waterkeeper Alliance and works with various groups across the planet fighting hydropower. And in the last five years alone, he's traveled to and written stories about dirty hydropower in Costa Rica, Thailand, Peru, Nepal, Ecuador, Hawaii, Nicaragua, New Zealand, four countries in Eastern Europe, and Zambia. So welcome to the podcast, Gary. Josh, thanks for having me on your show. Really glad you're here. Really appreciate the work you've been doing. So let's just get into it. I found some data here that says in 2019, hydropower, so dams on rivers, produced about 7% of U.S. electricity generation and 38% of so-called renewable energy. So what's wrong with hydropower? <laughs> yeah, that's what we call a softball for the question, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, hydropower is created by dams on rivers. And, of course, dams literally destroy rivers. That is, that's why they're called a dam. Uh, it's a metaphor and a noun all at the same time. Um, so just about everything that could go wrong with the dam uh, being on the river does. They, they block fish passage. They block sediment, which is important for river health. They completely change the temperature of rivers. Sometimes they're purposely and, and solely designed to, to drain water out of rivers, uh, and they do that in dramatic fashion across the planet. Um, one of the big things that's wrong with dams that produce hydropower, though, is because they also create greenhouse gas emissions. Hmm. And it's uh, somewhat of a, a little known uh, issue. Um, it's created a lot of attention over the last decade. Um, dams, uh, hydropower dams create greenhouse gas emissions because they, um, they flood uh, landscapes that have um, vegetation growing on them. And this is worse in uh, warmer landscapes, especially in the tropics. And as the dam water goes up, as the water in the reservoir goes up and down, it refloods uh, the vegetation, which then uh, grows back and floods and dies and grows back and floods and dies. Um, and when any kind of uh, vegetation or any kind of um, organic material decomposes underwater, hmm. it's called um, anaerobic uh, decomposition, and it creates methane. And there's a number of scientists who study the methane emissions from hydropower dams. And in places... Um, like uh, uh, Central America and South America, where, where it's very wet and very humid and, and warm, uh, dams can actually create quite, they can actually create more greenhouse gas emissions than uh, coal-fired power plants. In fact, they call some of these projects methane factories. They create so much uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Wow. In the United States, it's also a problem. Um, and it varies by where the reservoir is and how the dam is operated. If it's in the northern climates, it's less of a problem because it's usually cooler. If it's in the southern part of the United States, like Lake Mead, for example, and Hoover Dam. Yeah. Hoover Dam is where, you know, the, the global river destruction, uh, it's the genesis of global uh, massive dams and river destruction. Hoover Dam creates, the, and the hydropower plant there creates about the same amount of methane, uh, greenhouse gas emissions as a coal-fired power plant that would produce the same amount of electricity. And so just about everything that can go wrong with trying to create so-called quote-unquote green energy from hydropower does. Um, and 
it's a it's a growing problem across the planet um, and including here in the United States. Okay, so other than that minor issue of climate change, <laughs> what about fish stuff? Didn't they fix everything with fish stuff? Didn't they install some fish ladders and therefore everything's fine with fish, right? <laughs> um, there are ways to create dams and hydropower that are better for fish than worse for fish. Um, most hydropower uh, dams uh, do not have fish louders on them, or the fish louders don't work very well. Um, and in the United States, there are increasingly some regulations around trying to create fish ladders. However, in most of the rest of the world, there are not. And so, um, you know, again, in the United States, most of the good places to build hydropower dams have already been built, but um, this technology is being transferred across the planet with devastating impacts on rivers across the planet in places where they have little or no uh, environmental laws. And so, um, you know, the same kind of devastation that we saw here that we see on the Colorado River with Hoover Dam and Glen Canyon Dam and Fontenelle Dam, et cetera, uh, that, thing, that kind of technology is just being transferred across the planet, uh, draining and destroying rivers, um, eviscerating fish stocks, uh, and biodiversity, they flood massive amounts of landscapes in a lot of places too, especially not in the U.S., but it, all, but it happens in the U.S. a little bit, and also in Canada, um, they have devastating impacts on human rights and on local populations because people get flooded out yeah. uh, and, and they get forced to move, and so uh, there's massive problems with this so-called uh, green energy or clean energy concept. Yeah. Thanks for explaining all that. So you have a lot of focus on the Colorado River. You've worked on lots of different rivers, of course, but we're here in Colorado. I've spent a lot of time in the Southwest, hung out around the banks of the Colorado River. I've read a bit, researched a bit. Can you tell me a little bit about what's going on with the Colorado River and how dams might be playing a part of this? Well, sure. The, the Colorado River um, naturally has about five trillion gallons of water flowing it every, uh, flowing in it every year. However, every single drop is currently drained out before it reaches the Sea of Cortez and the Colorado River no longer reaches the sea. And so you know, that's just one uh, metric you might say with the problem with dams um, is that they not only create hydropower, but the ones in, in Southwest US are solely designed to drain water out of the river. And they do that with um, uh, kind of a miraculous success. And so, um, you know, n so not only is the river drain before it reaches the Sea of Cortez, there are um, multiple big dams on it, which change the flow, which change the temperature, and more and more water is drained out of it. There are endangered species have been, um, uh, you know, created because so much water has been drained out of the river and because the river uh, the type of water in the river is, has changed so much. You know, just as one example, if you go to the bottom uh, of the Grand Canyon, um, the river will be fairly uh, clear and kind of green looking, mm -hmm. especially if it hasn't rained for a while. Well, the grand, water in the Grand Canyon is supposed to be brown and muddy. Right. The reason it's not brown and muddy is because of all the mud and the sediment is stopped at Glen Canyon Dam. Uh, upstream. And so it's completely different uh, river ecosystem with different fish that um, uh, survive and thrive in there as opposed to what was naturally there. And so, uh, you know, just dams wreak havoc on uh, eco ecosystems. Uh, and the Colorado River, as I said earlier, um, 
you know, Hoover Dam was the first cut. It was the first big hydropower project uh, on the planet, and the technology is being transferred across the planet um, rapidly as we speak. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And like I said, I know a little bit about this stuff, but I'm still learning a lot, and I hope folks who are listening are as well. Because it's funny about what you say regarding the Grand Canyon. So you look down at the water. Oh, it's clear. It used to be muddy. Yay, we improved it. You know, team humans, we're, we're fixing nature. But you're saying that that is actually not how the ecosystem is supposed to be functioning. Now, the water that comes out of Glen Canyon Dam is cold and clear. It comes out near the bottom of the dam. Um, and cold water and clear water is a very completely different ecosystem than the, the warmer brown water, muddy water that used to flow in the Colorado River. So um, it might look pretty, but it is not in any way natural or it is not in any way you know, good for uh, a native ecosystem. So I spent a tiny bit of time on the shores of Lake Powell last year, or maybe it was two years ago. I spent a lot of time in the Southwest Desert and I wanted to check out Lake Powell. It was a super hot day and I thought, well, water sounds nice and I'd maybe be able to take a swim in this, uh, this uh, beautiful reservoir. And frankly, it was disgusting. It was all mucky and stinky at the edge. I, I camped out for an evening and I sort of felt soiled because it was just, not only did it feel not natural in that massive desert landscape to have this huge pool of evaporating water, but it was just kind of filthy. <laughs> and maybe you can talk a little bit about the history of the Glen Canyon Dam and maybe even work a little bit at Abbey into it. <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, what you kind of experience is, and a lot of the, the canyons sort of, that sort of lead down to Lake Powell, you get just this sort of slack water, kind of backwater, um, where lots of muck, lots of debris, lots of just garbage that people throw in the lake just kind of uh, goes to the edge of the of the lake and just kind of floats up into these sort of you know backwater canyons. And so you know you probably ran into that. It can be pretty disgusting at some points. Um, so you know, Glen Canyon used to be. Um, you know, one of the most beautiful canyons in, in uh, the world, as uh, people uh, would talk about it, the place no one knew. Uh, there was a famous book written about it. And, of course, it was um, uh, flooded by uh, the Glen Canyon Dam. Uh, it started in, I think they finished flooding that. Or they started in the 60s, and it finally filled up sometime in the late 80s, as I recall. Um, and so... It was also one of the, you know, classic fights of the American environmental movement, one of kind of the defining moments. It's Glen Canyon Dam is considered to be, by a lot of people like me, uh, one of the biggest mistakes that have ever been made um, in uh, sort of American environmentalism, where they further dammed uh, the Colorado River and drowned uh, this extraordinary beautiful canyon. And then fundamentally, um, you know, which people don't often know or talk about, uh, just had devastating ecological impacts on the Grand Canyon. You know, again, the Grand Canyon is supposed to have muddy, warm water in it. It's supposed to have a flow regime where it goes way up in the, in the spring and summer when all the snow melts and it goes down in the winter. And, of course, now it's a, it's a steady, cold, clear flow out of the bottom of Glen Canyon Dam for the most part. So it's completely changed, um, you know, the ecosystem there um, in, in the river, in the canyon, and in both canyons. And of course, it was um, 
you know, as you mentioned, it was uh, one of the stomping grounds of the famous uh, writer Edward Abbey. He wrote a very famous book called Desert Solitaire, which um, kind of catapulted him into the uh, canon of American environmental uh, literary uh, movement. And then wrote another um, book about you know, tearing down Glen Canyon Dam uh, called The Monkey Wrench Gang, which uh, was even more popular. And so, um, you know, that's one, just one of the big stories of American environmentalism in the Southwest is about Glen Canyon Dam and how it was such a big mistake. Right. And groups like Earth First that were inspired by the Monkey Wrench Gang, they obviously didn't blow up. Glen Canyon Dam, and we're not advocating for illegal activity on the Green Root podcast. However, they did unfurl a large banner in the form of a black crack, so a symbolic taking down of the dam. And environmental groups used to have this front and center, but these days, do you feel like environmental groups are paying much attention to the issue of dams on rivers? Well, you know, I'll, I'll address that question, you know, maybe a little differently than you're expected, you know, because over the past five years, I've had the chance to travel a lot around the world um, uh, and I'm more involved in some of these fights around the planet. You know, I would say that in a lot of respects, um, the environmental movement is more uh, active and uh, more alive and even a little bit more successful in other parts of the planet than they are in the United States. You know, um, in the United States, uh, in my opinion, a lot of environmentalism, not the group that I uh, work with, I would say, but a lot of environmentalism is big and bureaucratic, it's sort of corporate, and it's very incremental in its mindset, um, and it's very moderate. Um, and in other parts of the world, you'll, you'll get more grassroots, uh, I wouldn't call it radical, but it's actually local people, uh, with just some of the most amazing stories I've run across. Um, you know, especially like in uh, Nepal and Thailand and Eastern Europe. Um, just amazing local stories of people trying to protect their rivers and their livelihoods. And in the United States, you just see that uh, less so. Now, there are, there are some, there are some um, uh, big and good um, uh, places in the United States where there are fights going on. And, mm -hmm. of course, I'm involved in some of those, too. Uh, but uh, American environmentalism... You know, it has some pluses because it's sort of gotten big and corporate, but it also has, in my uh, opinion, some strong negatives uh, when it, um, you know, becomes more moderate and it's sort of incremental. And in some places, I spend part of my time just fighting other environmental groups because they actually support dams. They, they support them here right in Colorado. So I spend half my time, you know, there's like one in Boulder County, for example, where Denver Water is trying to uh, do a massive expansion of a dam. So I'm fighting Denver Water. I'm also fighting some of the environmental groups that actually support the project. So that's how crazy it can be. It's a recurring theme in my environmental career and clearly on the Green Root podcast where a lot of the folks that we need to be educating or pressuring are also environmental groups. Um, you know, and they're environmentalists and I think a lot of them are well-meaning, but clearly a lot of what they're advocating for is not helping the natural world and that's really unfortunate. So what do you think about the, was the lawsuit to declare the Colorado River having intrinsic rights of its own? Yeah, that was fascinating. And I was, you know, very aware of that um, from the, from the get-go. I thought that they were trying to create a rights of nature movement uh, on the Colorado River and give the Colorado River itself a legal right to exist. 
Um, and so I knew the attorney and knew the plaintiffs. And um, it was a fascinating uh, uh, legal exercise. They got a whole lot of media attention, which I think was very useful and very important, brought a lot of awareness to the issue. And, and they finally dropped it uh, because the... Um, they had the, you know, the attorney was getting threatened uh, to get sanctions against him, and so you know it it uh, it ended finally. But um, um, I was kind of uh, behind the scenes rooting for it and just rooting for the amazing story they were going to tell. I mean, I like to say this in Colorado as an example: um, rivers have no right to exist. And I'm uh, very active on the Cache Laputa River in Fort Collins, and I'll tell people, you know, the, the, the farmers in the cities, and especially farmers, can do what they call sweep the river, which means take every single drop out of it. They'll drain it bone dry. And so the river has no right to exist. But if there's water in the river, it's illegal to go down to the river and dump a can of gasoline in the river because you're actually polluting the water. But the river itself and the ecosystem has no right to exist. And so, you know, that, that varies a little bit. There are some places where there are some rights around uh, water and rivers and the species in the rivers, but it's very small and very incremental, whereas rivers themselves and ecosystems themselves uh, often have no right to exist at all in the state of Colorado and Southwest United States. Sure. So what would be a more effective way to deal with this situation if it's not getting people to accept that nature has a right to exist, which... I believe in, and I think a lot of people believe in, but getting the legal structure to recognize that might be a long haul. Well, I mean, uh, I want to be clear that uh, I'm not trying to be a buzzkill, but I want to be clear that you know we do have a laws, and I, and again, because I've been able to travel a lot around the, the world and look at various different laws in different countries, um, America has some of the better laws. Um, um, as opposed to other countries. Now, there are countries with better laws than America, better environmental laws. America has, you know, okay laws, but they're not that strong. They're just not. I mean, the National Environmental Policy Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act are the most of the federal laws I deal with. And they're not that strong. They mostly regulate the amount of destruction. They rarely actually stop the destruction. Now, I, I, I try to use those laws absolutely to stop the destruction. Um, but... Um, you know, we really do need to move to more of a rights of nature movement, in my opinion, to actually get uh, protection uh, rather than just, uh, you know, ongoing regulation of destruction. Um, you know, people point to the Endangered Species Act, and, and we do have the Endangered Species Act. It can be very effective in, you know, stopping species right when, before they're the brink of just, you know, not existing anymore on the planet. But, but that's like, you know, you get to the worst possible case, the worst possible situation, and you're stopping it right before uh, it, it's gone ever again. That doesn't actually protect, you know, a species to exist and flourish in any kind of what its native environment or native habitat used to be. Sure. So can you tell a little bit about the situation with the dam outside of Boulder and what that's all about? And then we'll move to another part of the country and then we'll expand a little bit around the world. Sure. There's a proposal to expand uh, Gross Dam and Gross Reservoir. It's in uh, southwestern Boulder County. There's a dam there right now, and Denver Water owns it. And they want to uh, make it uh, quite a bit bigger and taller. In fact, it'd be the proposed tallest dam in the state of Colorado. Um, the water would come from the Colorado River. They want to increase the amount of pumping that they pump from the Colorado River over uh, or underneath the Continental Divide in a massive um, a tunnel 
and pipe it down to uh, Gross Reservoir, which they want to expand dramatically. And then, of course, uh, send all that water out to the sprawling megalopolis of Denver um, to uh, fuel and subsidize even more growth. And that's, you know, short version of the story. So anyway, we're in a battle royale against that proposal um, uh, with uh, five different environmental groups. We're in federal litigation. We're also uh, supporting Boulder County, which is trying to force Denver water through a permitting process. So we're in court uh, with the county, too. And uh, that, that battle is kind of ongoing right now. So the growing population of Denver, which I can attest to and which I was partly responsible for <laughs> having moved to Denver about six years ago, I'm now up in the mountains. I've now escaped the big city, but <laughs> my my footprint still exists. So folks in Denver are drinking or want to be drinking the Colorado River, <laughs> is what you're saying? Yeah, about half the water that Denver uses uh, is Colorado River water oh. uh, piped under piped under the Continental Divide. Yeah, it comes out uh, there at South Boulder Creek or down in Park County. Um, it comes out through, um, I think it's the south, the north fork of the South Platte River, too. Um, so, actually, when you drive up I-70 and you go by Lake Dillon mm -hmm. there, which is, you know, right uh, before you get to Breckenridge along I-70, that's Denver water, and there's a there's a tunnel going out of Lake Dillon that goes underneath the Continental Divide and goes down into the South Platte River, too. And so about half the water in Denver comes out of the Colorado River. Now, interestingly, though, um, because of water conservation and water efficiency, water use in Denver is actually going down, not up. Um, and the population is growing and the water use is going down. So that's, of course, one of the points that we're making in our in our lawsuits is that the Denver water doesn't need more water uh, because they just need to conserve more. Uh, and they would they would be fine as it is. So, you know, as you know, in the West, um, amazing amounts of water is wasted. Right. Um, and that's true along here in the Front Range of Colorado, where we live. About half of the water that's used by cities is used to keep the grass green. Uh, usually in July, you know, it rains usually through my kind of mid-June. And then things start to brown out in July, August, September. Everything turns brown. And about half the water that uh, we use along the Front Range is used to keep the grass green. So, right. right. It's uh, it's an amazing, um, you know, cultural phenomenon that we're just literally draining and destroying uh, rivers and ecosystems to keep grass green. That's um, so pretty darn awful. And I didn't actually realize that Denver was currently siphoning off the Colorado. So uh, that's that's on me for not knowing that. So thanks for letting me know. I suppose it is a positive thing in that despite the population spike here in Denver, these efficiency measures are actually reducing things that that's an excellent thing. But does that mean so that means we can just have pretty much everyone in the country can just move into Denver then. Right. Because all we have to do is conserve a little bit of water and we're good. Well, um, conservation certainly helps. Um, you know, they can also buy water from farmers. The cities can buy water from farmers and they do that all the time. That's another source of water. Uh, of course, the big kahuna is population growth, though, you know, at some point. Um, you know, they might run out of water to conserve. And so, um, you know, the growth is just sort of crazy. And, um, you know, if, if I would, you know, if we want to use that as kind of a launching point around the southwest U.S. and the Colorado River, of course, there's rapid population growth in Utah, which is trying to build a huge project, a uh, dam project to drain more water out of the Colorado River. There's rapid population growth um, in uh, Nevada, which is trying to build a big project. 
And of course, you know, California continues to grow and grow too. And so, uh, as does Arizona. So, um, Mm -hmm. um, you know, conservation can make a big difference and also buying water from farmers can make a big difference. But, you know, those are the three levers you can pull on. You can either conserve water, you can buy the water from farmers, or you can further drain and destroy rivers. And we're trying to keep them from further draining and destroying rivers. So there's limits to these dry climates as to how many people can really exist out here. Uh, I had an idea for years, and it's not caught on, but basically Colorado doesn't have any stories about why you shouldn't move to Colorado. So, for instance, I used to live in Vermont, which we'll get to in a minute. So I would tell everyone, yeah, you don't want to move to Vermont. It snows all the time. You know, it's negative 100 degrees pretty much every day in the winter. You'll probably die if you come here. You should probably not move to Vermont. And then when I lived in Oregon, it's like, oh, yeah, it really it rains all every day in Oregon. It's constant flooding. You get no vitamin D, so everyone gets depressed and kills themselves. You shouldn't move to Oregon. So we had some nice lies in place to keep people out. But here in Colorado, what are you going to say? Oh, it's it's too sunny and beautiful. You know, the closest I've come to is you have a higher incident of skin cancer but that's not really enough to keep people out. So do you have any recommendations? <laughs> <laughs> you know, here's something to think about. Um, Wyoming to the north of us and New Mexico to the south of us, neither one of those are growing and their populations have been mostly stable for the last few decades. Hmm. Colorado is a very different beast, um, as is Utah uh, and Nevada, both of which are growing in, in, in Arizona. Um, and it's mostly because just there's a growth mindset. I call it the, the growth machine. It's the real estate industry um, and the, uh, the development industry just uh, over time kind of takes over local and state politics and just turns the entire state into a real estate development, which is constantly promoting itself, constantly trying to grow, 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 sell, 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 and just constantly cramming more and more people into a tighter and tighter space. And, you know, as you know, living along the Front Range, Colorado, uh, you called it a growth spike earlier. I mean, the population growth is dramatic. Um, it's not just negatively impacting the rivers, but it's negatively impacting, you know, all outdoor recreation experiences. I mean, trailheads are packed. Uh, trails are packed with people. Wildlife is being run off just from so many people, whether they're hiking or biking or on four-wheelers or whatever. Um, it's just an it's just an ongoing problem, and I would just, you know, for lack of a better word, call it the growth machine and, the, you know, just the development industry. Once it sinks its claws into the political apparatus, and here it's, it's not only sunk its claws in, it owns the political apparatus. You know, in Colorado, you never hear Democrats or Republicans talk about slowing or stopping growth. I mean, yeah. fueling and subsidizing growth and supporting growth is, is like, you know, people say we live in these horrible times of partisanship where everything is like, you know, Democrats versus Republicans. Well, they all love growth. And yeah. so no, no one ever talks about trying to um, um, slow or stop growth. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I've been calling Colorado cali because it's becoming like California. And again, who am, you know, who am I? I come in, you know, six years ago into the state. So I acknowledge I'm part of the problem. I didn't realize it was this huge wave. I came right before the wave because I wanted to move out back west, and I had an uncle out here, so I checked it out, and I was like, yeah, this is the place for me. It's got a city, it's got some cool stuff going on, and it's got some amazing natural scenery, and then access to the rest of the southwest, and then then the flood hit, and I was like, oh man, what did, what did I do? And yeah, I noticed that with the trails. I go hiking every week. Basically, I do these 
very obscure hikes. I study the maps to find these trailheads that are barely there that people don't even know about to avoid people. And even my little obscure spots, noticing more and more there are folks that are finding them. So I'm not pretending that I'm pure. I don't think it's about that. I think we are all part of the problem, but we've got to acknowledge what's going on. So let's move a little bit to, well, a fair amount to the Northeast, to Vermont. And I'll set this up by saying I used to live in Vermont for many years. I think I've lived there a total of 10 years total or something like that. Went to college there. More recently, the city of Burlington had declared that they're 100% renewable energy. And it's like, wow. And there were all these stories about it. It's like, they did it. This is the model. Then you look a little closer. And I knew about it at the time, of course, but I was trying to show other people. It's like, well, where are they getting their, quote, renewable energy from? Well, one, it's from a massive biomass as in tree burning <laughs> polluting facility called the McNeil generating facility. And that uh, that's a lot of their, quote, renewable energy. And then the rest of it is from a dam on the Quebec River, I believe. And you are pretty familiar with stuff that's going on up in, in regards to that. And I'll just read a headline for an article that you sent me from The Guardian. It says, U.S. demand for clean energy destroying Canada's environment, indigenous peoples say. So there's a lot in that headline. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? <clears throat> sure. You know, one of just a little aside too. Uh, early on in Bernie Sanders's um, presidential election, he was talking about, one of his ads was talking about renewable energy or, and he had a picture of a dam in um, Vermont. I thought that was kind of interesting. And um, I tried to communicate with the campaign and say, you know, dams are killing rivers. They're not, they're not good examples of renewable energy. But, you know, the Northeast United States um, gets a lot of its electricity from uh, hydropower dams in Quebec. And there's just massive problems going up in Quebec right now where there's, um, they call them mega dams are being built all towards the idea of uh, shipping electricity through massive transmission lines uh, down through Vermont, Maine, down to New York City, and just the, the East Coast, um, causing huge problems on rivers in Quebec, including uh, extraordinary negative impacts to um, indigenous uh, First Peoples populations up there that depend on the rivers uh, for survival. Um, one of the big things that happens, um, there's a, a dam there, um, that's called Muskrat Falls uh, in Quebec, where uh, most of the first peoples are against it because it, as it floods the landscape, it causes mercury. It's called methyl mercury to come out of the soil and it poisons the water and gets in the fish. And so it fundamentally changes, you know, just the health of eating fish, which the um, communities thrive and survive on. So, you know, uh, there's, this this concept that hydropower is clean or green is um, is not just wrong. It's dangerous. Uh, it's not just dangerous for the rivers uh, and the environment. It's dangerous for people in many places too. And you know, I guess the bottom line, uh, which is a story I think you're familiar with, uh, there are just so many people and so many people wanting energy, uh, and there is no such thing as you know perfectly clean renewable energy. There's going to be negative impacts with everything. Uh, you just, uh, of course, mentioned biofuel. Uh, hydropower has significant negative impacts. Solar has negative impacts. Wind has negative impacts. And of course, fossil fuels have negative impacts. Mm -hmm. And so at some point, 
you know, we have to bring up the concept that you brought up earlier, which is just about limits. What are the limits to growth and what are the limits to the amount of, you know, people that we can have on the planet, especially the amount of people that you can have in uh, industrialized countries that are super high consumers and super high emitters. And, you know, that there's going to be like this magic um, wand or this, you know, miracle energy source that's just going to fix everything. It's just not only wrong, it's ridiculous. And uh, we have to talk about this. We got to quit, you know, um, uh, hiding from it uh, because uh, there are there are negative impacts everywhere for every type of energy. Right, right. And of course, the issue when we start talking about population, it gets pretty contentious. I think it's clear we're talking about consumption. It's consumption times the number of consumers. I don't think that a responsible environmentalist can completely avoid that question. Of course, it's a very sensitive topic and there have been issues in the past and there's certainly folks who do utilize population arguments because of racism. But I would say the vast majority of folks who are concerned about the number of consumers on the planet are not coming from a racist perspective. And none of them are, of course, <laughs> advocating for eugenics or murdering people. <laughs> so if we were to take a look at the population issue over time, what would be some of those ways of dealing with population? Well, you know, the, the, old, um, the old school formula is called I equals PAT. Impact equals population times affluence times technology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the modern environmental movement uh, almost, uh, in terms of energy especially, almost solely focuses on the T, technology. They're just trying to change, change the technology. Um, but because uh, uh, affluence or just the amount of consumption, you know, we're still remains very high. And it's, of course, it's very high in places like the United States. And the population still remains very high. It's growing, you know, by 224,000 people uh, a day in the, in the planet. Uh, and it's also growing rapidly in the United States. The population keeps going up. And so, um, you know, I think you have to look at uh, every bit of the equation. You got to look at the population. You got to look at the affluence, and you got to look at the technology. And I think if we're going to be, um, you know, honest environmentalists, we have to face that and look at all three. And so, you know, I don't have the answer per se, but I one of the things I've tried to do the last couple of years, I started writing about growth more and population more, is to start the conversation so we can all start talking about it rather than hiding from it because. Um, you know, you can't fix what you refuse to see. And if you're refusing to see the problem of population growth or refusing to see the problem of affluence, um, you can you can read you can mess with technology all you want, but you're not going to fix this problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely focus a lot on the consumption issue because I think here it's clear in the United States, you know, you can take someone from another part of the world and times 10 times 20 times even more than that. And it doesn't even match the footprint of one person, probably even such as myself, who doesn't live particularly high on the hog. So I do think that consumption is the major piece. But obviously, at a certain point when it doesn't matter if your impact is 50 times less, if there are 50 times more people, it's still going to equal something we need to deal with. So in my mind, it seems to be about getting people out of poverty so then people can have more education and not require the basically voluntary birth control. And I think pretty much everyone who is a part of progressive movements supports birth control, yet somehow when it's talked about in these contexts, people get a little bit antsy. And I, I do, I do think it's a very, very delicate subject. And I do think that we have to acknowledge that some folks have used this for 
evil purposes, but that doesn't mean that the topic should not be discussed. And I think helping people get out of poverty, educating more people around the world and giving women access to birth, birth control so they can decide the size of their family are all positive things we can all agree with. And that moves us forward on this issue of consumption times consumers. So we'll probably leave it at that so we can move on to a couple other things. But here at the Gruner Podcast, we're going to talk about some of the topics that are a little bit uncomfortable and I don't think we can afford to just avoid that. And those of you who are listening to this who know that we should be at least having this conversation, yet you stay out of it, I would argue you're not being quite responsible. And let's make sure that anyone who is talking about the population issue is not coming from a racist background, because those are the folks that we need to shut out of the discussion because their opinions are not valid and not useful and not wanted. But the vast majority of people who are concerned about this are genuine environmentalists who care about people and want to uplift all people. So I'll leave my, my rant at that. But let's, let's talk about, since we're talking about stuff outside of the US to a certain degree, can you talk a little bit about dams in other parts of the world and what's going on over there? Yeah, you know, a lot of the proposed dams uh, around the world are, are being built for electricity and they're mostly hydropower dams. Now, there's still water supply dams trying to be built here and there, but a lot of it is trying to you know, bring electricity to places that don't have it. Um, I was just in, um, uh, last fall, I was in Zambia and Zimbabwe. There's a huge proposed dam on the Zambezi River. In, a, in one of the most beautiful rivers, uh, I spent four days rafting on the Zambezi River in a place called Batoka Gorge. Uh, and they're trying to build a dam right in the gorge, which would ruin all the white water and ruin the economy around for the local tribes people completely depend on uh, for their economic livelihood as, as raft guides and, and supporting tourism. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, they're trying to uh, bring electricity there to the people. And I got to experience it because I was standing in a in a restaurant and there was a blackout while I was standing there right in Livingstone, uh, Zambia. But, you know, and so a lot of times it sounds like a good idea, um, but there are, but, you know, at the same time, uh, it's, it's a very sunny place. If you really wanted to use some kind of technology, you probably should consider solar, mm -hmm. not more dams. But, you know, what happens in a lot of countries, especially developing world countries where the laws are weak, there's also a lot of corruption is you'll get like a multinational hydropower corporation will come in. They'll cut some, try to cut some deal with the government. There's all sorts of financial kickbacks. Bada boom, bada bing. You got a dam being built. You got electricity being generated. Sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, the local people are still sitting there in the dark and the electricity and the wires go to the big city, like in, in Johannesburg or wherever in South Africa. Um, the corporation gets money, the, the, maybe some politicians get money, and the people are still sitting in the dark. And so there's um, all, you know, every conceivable angle of chaos that you can possibly see, environmental, and political, and financial, exists around dam building and hydroelectric power around the planet. This is going on in Africa, it's going on a lot in Central America, a lot in South America, and also in South Asia, uh, where they're still trying to build uh, hydropower dams. You know, for example, I was on the Karnali River uh, in Nepal, which is in far western Nepal, trying to build, uh, at what time it was going to be the tallest uh, dam in the world. Um, and they now, they've now um, decided to make it slightly smaller, but still haven't built it yet. But it's like an Indian engineering company uh, who's trying to 
came in trying to cut a deal with the Nepali government. Um, the Nepali government gets a bit of the money and a little bit of electricity, but most of the money and most electricity goes back to the engineering company, then it gets shipped off in massive wires back to India, which is population at first is growing like crazy. And so, you know, every every conceivable problem you can possibly imagine exists. You know, um, I was on the Marignan River in Peru, uh, which uh, which is uh, the biggest uh, tributary to the Amazon and and drains the entire eastern flank of the um, of the Andes Mountains, and they're trying to build massive dams there. A lot of that's to um, you know, which gets back to your energy your energy thing. They're trying to build massive dams to generate electricity to uh, fuel and subsidize the mining industry, hmm. to you know just uh, to mine rare metals and just common metals like copper, which of course are are sent all across the planet for population growth. Just just about every way. Every crazy way um, that uh, you know, hydroelectric power and electricity uh, can tie into the political, economic, and financial system. It happens around the planet. That's fascinating. It seems like common threads in all these parts of the world. It's a very similar thing going on. Would you say that ecotourism? You mentioned that briefly. Do you think that's a worthwhile thing to put out there in terms of you let these rivers run free? That can be a sustainable source of income for folks coming in to do rafting and just enjoying the river? Yeah, it can certainly help. Um, in some places, the story is very compelling. On the Zambezi River, for example, in, in the, which it borders Zambia and Zimbabwe, um, it's really easy to get to. Livingstone, Zambia is right beside the Zambezi. You can, you can stay in a nice little lodge there in Livingstone and zip down to the Zambezi River in like an hour and go on an amazing raft trip. Uh, for a half day or a full day or multiple days and zip right back up into and Livingstone and, and you, know, you can have like a there's there's a there's a real completely viable tourist economy that exists in other places where the rivers are more remote like the one I was on in um, in the Amazon the Marignan or, or the Carnali River in Peru they're, they're remote you know it can take a while to get there a day or two um, you know you got to be on the river for multiple days because there's no place to take in and out and it's harder in those places to create like a, a viable um, ecotourism economy that can actually, you know, provide a fair amount of money. Now there's still there's still people trying to do it, and you can still do it. Um, and so it varies on where you're at. Whether ecotourism, I think, can, can make a lot of sense and really be effective. Um, and then, of course, you can get to other places you know, like here in the United States, where you can sometimes get so much ecotourism that it's it is also a devastating environmental impact and kind of like it overrun the economy and oh, the yeah. local environment. So, you know, things, things, there's never like a, a, a simple or answer or a silver bullet anywhere. It always varies in terms of what makes the most sense. You mean there's not a one size fits all solution? Come on. <laughs> that's, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. So in some cases, though, aren't dams built to prevent flooding and to keep people safe? Yes, uh, and they do prevent flooding and do keep people safe. However, um, if people are living in a floodplain, um, that may not, that was probably the first part of the problem that we should be thinking about. And you know, you see that along the front range of Colorado too. I mean, vast amounts of money are you know, like the cities along along front range of Colorado. They spend vast amounts of money. On um, on their uh, stormwater management, which mm. is like trying to channel every bit of the, the flood water that comes through and and get it in the river and get it downstream as fast as possible. Um, where where the, the whole problem is that people 
have been allowed to build in floodplains. Um, 100-year floodplains, you know, it's, it's very common that things are built in floodplains. And that goes on around the rest of the world even more so. Um, so, yeah. So you know, rivers are alive. They're, they're natural things. And sometimes they flow really high and sometimes they flow really low. The smartest thing to do is to get out of the way and don't build your house uh, where you have a, if you have a choice not to, don't build your house in a floodplain. Um, and we're also seeing examples of quite the exact opposite. We just saw this in Michigan. We've seen other parts around the world where dams can break too. And then uh, everything that's below downstream of the dam gets flooded out. And so um, again, um, what might seem like a miracle cure at one time can also be uh, a dramatic problem in another. Right. Well, it's like when folks here in Colorado and throughout the West building homes deep into the forest and then wildfires happen. It's like, well, <laughs> you're in a place where wildfires happen. So it's like you build a house in a floodplain, stuff gets flooded. So back in Vermont where I was living, we had this massive flood. I believe it was 2012, I can't remember. And then the year after, Colorado had a very similar situation. And that's when you live at the foot of mountains, when you live right at the edge of all these watersheds, shit happens sometimes. It's it's unfortunate. But I, I had this vision, if I could redo civilization, there's a lot of things I would do differently. But one of the things would be doing instead of, which is all of civilization, we build our cities and communities alongside rivers and our lakes and stuff like that. Instead, I would push them away, not just to avoid flooding and stuff like that, but to keep them pristine. So if anyone wants to join my campaign to reverse time and fix that, uh, email me, I guess. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit, just uh, possibly some things that you might support in the world of hydro and you might not, but I just want to toss out a couple things out there and then we'll finish up. So what about micro hydro? What do you think about that? Yeah, there are some concepts out there that can make, um, can make a difference. Micro hydro is one of those. Um, you can actually put... Uh, hydroelectric turbines uh, directly in streams uh, that can make a difference you can also put them in pipes and ditches uh, so there are ways to generate electricity using water uh, that aren't as bad as others you know generally i would say though that um, hydropower is one of the more destructive of the so-called clean energies uh, because it, it it you know it drains and destroys rivers you know one of the other things you often hear about something called pumped hydropower storage, where they actually try to um, take water out of a river or a lake. They pump it uphill um, during the daytime, which it, uh, which it can be, um, or during the nighttime when electricity rates are really low, and then they run it downhill through electric turbines uh, when when the electric rates are higher, and they can they can actually make money. And there are private companies that do this. They can make money uh, by by the difference between the price and cost of bump it up and the, and the amount of money you made when it was running down uh, in, in the daytime when people are using electricity. And so, you know, those kinds of ideas are out there too. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways to make electricity. They're all going to have some kind of impact. I think sure. the hydropower is um, uh, ranks right up there uh, uh, yeah. as one of the worst ways, yep. um, uh, in my opinion. Um, in some places, it's actually worse than fossil fuels in terms of the amount of climate change emissions that it creates. Sure, and water is so precious for so many different reasons. Messing around in there is something we need to be really careful of and making sure it's doing more good than harm. It seems like in most cases it's doing 
more harm than good. And some of these smaller scale things probably do have some impacts. The question is, are they more than literal drops in the bucket or not? The pipes thing, I've been hearing about that for years. It's the same story about Portland, Oregon, and I don't know if it's really expanded much, but I'm interested in those community scale aspects and maybe that stuff communities can do. But at a certain point, there's only so much you can do regarding that if we don't take a look at infinite growth. But let's let's finish this up by talking about where would you say are the best candidates for dam removal? Well, there's um, a fair amount of dam removal going on in the United States. I think there were somewhere around 100 dams moved last year. Um, there's been, uh, let's see, one, two removed up on the Cache-Lapuda River that um, I've been involved in. So there's a lot of small, just kind of relic dams uh, around the United States um, that, you know, should be removed and can be removed and aren't, aren't any function whatsoever. You know, a lot of dams were built 150 years ago, and they're just sitting there clogging a river, and they don't, they don't generate electricity anymore. They don't do anything with clogged rivers. And so there's a lot of opportunities to... Uh, make rivers more free-flowing uh, in the United States. Um, my organization, Save the Colorado, we filed a lawsuit against Glen Canyon Dam, mm. and they're actually trying to force the go federal government to consider removing that one. And so, of course, that's a big, epic battle, uh, mm. as opposed to like a small battle. Um, so there, there's a lot of opportunity. You know, really sort of the sky's the limit in terms of dam removal. Um, what, what usually is the, uh, what holds it back is just the amount of money it costs because it, it can cost money to, um, to remove a dam because there's a lot of work you got to do to get the cement out. You got to do something with all the cement or all the sediment and there's just, you know, massive construction effort. So what, what holds back a lot of dams being removed is just um, financial um, uh, reality. Well, they're jobs, right? And we need jobs right now uh, in this post-COVID world. So maybe that's uh, a good place to put people to work. Those would be green jobs, too. Yep. Ripping out roads and national forests and going to town on some of these dams. That sounds like a good plan to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much, Gary, for taking the time to be on the podcast. And thanks so much for your work. Yeah, thank you, Josh. I'm a fan of your podcast and, and all you've done. And so uh, thanks for having me on. Absolutely.